politics Some culture and craft beer Politics And that is why you're here Politics Bottoms up Bottoms up and welcome back. I think we're somewhere along episode 89. I wasn't really even sure until I checked. And when I checked, I thought to myself, are you going to announce the episode on the air? Because it really doesn't matter. You see what the episode number is based on whatever source you're pulling it from, I suppose. And it doesn't really mean anything during the podcast. So I'm probably going to forego that in the future. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but in the meantime, it is uh, 89, and I, I suppose it's also kind of nice when you think about milestones. 89 is no milestone, but if and when I get to 100, I'm sure that I would call it out. Maybe I'll have a little party here in the studio. Okay, to the beer. This week's offering is a shorts uh, brew product called Space Rock Pale Ale. Uh, They described it as hopped up with some tasty little nuggets of alien technology. 5% ABV. They also uh, call out in several different ways here, both with a a little icon and some text, that it's brewed to take the gluten out. But it also has a disclaimer on here that it may not be gluten-free. They can't really be certain that they've gotten all the gluten out. Not really sure why they would do that. If you're a person that really cannot have gluten, say you have, you know, celiacs or something, then you're not going to risk it. And if you're a person that doesn't really have a concern about gluten, you don't really care that they tried to take the gluten out of it. I suppose there's those people that are trying to reduce their gluten and maybe they feel better about the beer that way. I'm, I'm not really sure. It's a colorful can. Uh, fun, like most of Short's uh, products are. It's a pale ale. I did already pour it, and it's uh, very golden in color. I got about uh, a quarter of an inch ahead on it. It's got some nice citrus notes to it. Um, it's very dry. Uh, it's a dry hop beer, probably. Um, really hits you in the glands in the aftertaste, something I'm not really fond of. It's hoppy, but not as bitter as it is hoppy. Um, I guess that's maybe why they don't classify it as an IPA, I guess. It's a tad hazy. I I don't know if I would classify this beer for me. It's certainly refreshing. And as we get into warmer weather, we were up to 68 here in Michigan. uh, I will be probably tasting more of those refreshing ales. I'll still bring back some porters and stouts occasionally because those really are my favorite. But I, I'm going to you know, be able to mix it up a little bit more as we move into the summer seasons. So right now it's okay. I'm going to enjoy it during the podcast. And maybe I'll circle back at the end and, and give you another update. Uh, today, the House took the final vote on the COVID relief bill. Uh, you know, they voted first, you know, their proposal went to the Senate. The Senate voted to pass it strictly on party lines. I think it was 49-50. I don't know which Republican senator didn't vote for it. Somebody must have either abstained or uh, was a no-show. 
because it didn't require Harris to be a tiebreaker. So it passed 49-50. And then it went back to the House for any changes that the Senate may have made. And I believe that there were a few. I think it was regarding the cap, but I'm not sure. And then the House votes on it. And they did that today, again, strictly party lines. And I think it goes to Biden's desk on Friday for signature. I know that I've touched on this before during the process of this bill. And I do think there is a sadness that it is not bipartisan. But I only blame one party for that. And that, of course, is the Republicans. They just don't want to compromise to the point where they're going to support anything Democratic. So what I mean by that is they're willing to compromise or try and get the Democrats to compromise instead of saying, okay, we don't want it to be $1.9 trillion. We want it to be $1.4 trillion. And the Democrats could acquiesce to that if they felt like it was still good enough. But then what happens is the Republicans still don't support it. So the bill gets watered down. The Republicans get what they want. The Democrats are fools for giving up something and getting nothing. The Republican constituents still then think that it doesn't contain anything for them because Republicans didn't support it. This is exactly what happened with the ACA back with Obama. All kinds of amendments and changes were put in to support Republican ideas of the bill, and then none of them voted for it anyway. And so then the Republican constituents completely turned on the Democrats, and that's why they flipped the House. And I think the Democrats have learned, you you know what, if we're not going to get anything for compromising, I'm not going to compromise. What, What? And this is a classic example of that. I do believe there was room for compromise in this bill. I mean, there's a whole bunch of, you know, chatter out there about pork and waste in the bill. And there may be, it's without reading the whole bill and understanding all the legalese in it, it's really hard just to pick up on, you know, those little snippets in the news where somebody says, oh, there's $40 billion going to schools in, you know, Angola, right? I don't know whether that's in there or not. What typically happens with these reconciliation bills is they're part of larger um, financial packages. And so there's things in that part of the bill that get tossed into the rhetoric of the 1.9 COVID relief. But even if they aren't, even if there's things in there that may be not directly benefiting or a cause of COVID, I'm still going to say this is what we need. You know, I think it was Robert Reich who said, it's better to go big than go small at this point in time. We didn't go big enough in 2020 with the relief packages they put in there. That's why we're here where we're at. Those bills were passed with bipartisan support because Democrats were not playing the power game. And if they thought it was good for the constituents, they voted for it. You know, they didn't vote for Trump's tax cuts because they didn't think that was good for America. And it's so funny now. I, I heard John Barrasso giving an interview on TV and was asked, why did you support $1.9 trillion in tax cuts, but you don't want to support $1.9 trillion in benefits uh, that go out to the American people? Uh, of course, he didn't answer the question. He talked about how revenues have gone up since 
the 1.9, even though the deficit has gone up greater. So then he went off about spending. And of course, that doesn't answer the question of why do you support this 1.9, but not that 1.9, when really the Democrat 1.9 is going to help a lot more people than the rich and the big corporations who were far and away the primary beneficiaries of the uh, Trump tax cuts. So, you know, there's this double standard, and, and I guess that's politics, but it's really just politics on the GOP side. The, the other thing about any waste or pork that's in the bill, it's really easy to say, well, this looks like waste, but you do have to dive into it. You, you do have to have a better understanding of why it's there and what the reason is that it was placed inside this bill at this time. You know, just to pull out some things and say the whole bill is bad for those reasons, that's really not a genuine argument to make. I could probably come up with a with a metaphor uh, if I was maybe a little sharper. But anyway, I'm I'm glad that the bill is what it is, and that I I can speak for the state of Michigan, for instance. The extended benefits for the unemployed have run out in Michigan. Um, there, that was because of COVID relief. And somehow or another, that was tied to some sort of unemployment percent indices. So in other words, if the unemployment drops below 5%, extended benefits end because you know we're no longer a high unemployment state. Not really sure how it works, but I know they expired this week, but I don't think everyone's gone back to work. And it's not like all of a sudden your unemployment drops and then you have a job. You know, I think that most of the people that were unemployed were still looking for work, probably, maybe not. But this $1,400 bucks is going to help them quite a bit. And then the child tax credits are going to help out even more so and probably in the long term be a more influential part of the bill in terms of its impact on society. So there's a lot of good things in the bill. And if there's a couple of bad things in the bill, um, I'm not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. How about that for an analogy? Um, I don't know if there's anything more to say about the uh, COVID relief package uh, other than uh, it's good to see that the Democrats just moved forward and did what uh, they were going to, what they said they were going to do, what Joe, bon- Joe Biden wanted them to do. And, uh, you know, they're going to steamroll the Republicans the best they can, I suppose. I've been wondering if I'll ever do a Pottoms Up podcast and it not be about Trump. We are in the post-Trump era now, presidentially speaking, and it is getting to be a little bit more normal, right? There's news about Biden. This is the COVID relief. It had nothing to do with Trump. And what we really want out of the Biden administration essentially is to be boring. And by and large, it is. Uh, you know, the Trumpsters out there are, you know, shaking their rattles about China connections or, you know, tying him to Mr. Potato Head or Disney or Dr. Seuss or whatever, you know, a bunch of nonsense. But not everything is also going really smooth for Joe either. Um, there is a lot happening down at the border, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. Um, It will be interesting to see what he does long-term, and he is involved in the never-ending wars. 
I, I, I didn't touch on that last week, and I apologize, and I probably should have. It's a little old news right now, so I'm, I'm not going to go back to it, but I have concerns like many other progressives that he's con- continuing a, uh, a doctrine that has been kind of a failed policy. And uh, of course, we now know that his dogs bite, so that's a big scandal too. Uh, but, but back to Trump. So I thought maybe this week I wouldn't mention him, but here we are. This is not the week that goes Trumpless uh, because of the fight that he has decided to pick with the RNC. And these are things that I just think are juicy. Like it, this just, you know, sort of gets me going, right? It's really not a, a scandal in terms of how it hurts the American people, but it is something to kind of watch play out, right? And and what I'm talking about is Trump and his lawyers recently sent a cease and desist letter to the RNC demanding that they stop using his name and likeness for fundraising. And I kind of understand that, right? Nobody wants, you know, other people making money off them if they're not getting a piece of the action. Uh, in the political world, it's a little bit different because he's considered the leader of the Republican Party still. And so, of course, they're going to use him and his persona to maximize their fundraising efforts. And he's come along and said, no, because there's a couple things that drive Trump. One is making money, right? And if he can't make money, he's really going to be pissed if somebody else is making money off of him. And so what he has done is basically told his base and his constituents, followers, to send the money to his PAC. So don't give money to the RNC or to their PACs. Only send their money to the Save America PAC, the SAP, because they're a bunch of saps. So it's very fitting in that way. And he doesn't want to share that money with the RNC. It's it's put the RNC in an interesting situation. Now they've gone, they've gone, they've already come out and said, we're going to ignore the letter. And I don't know if this thing is going to find its way through the courts because I, I, I kind of think they need each other, but maybe not. Like, does Trump really need the RNC? The RNC needs Trump. Trump probably does need them. I mean, if Trump goes off and does a third party, which doesn't seem likely, it kills the Republican Party. They never win another election. You split that vote down the middle or whatever it is, the Democrats walk away with everything. That, that, that has to be obvious to them, right? But I don't know that Trump really needs the RNC. Uh, but he's also one to not really give up on this. Now, whether the donors send their money to him and stop giving to the RNC, that would maybe that's what's going to happen, right? I know that the RNC is so worried about it that they took one of their donor retreats, I think probably just, you know, for the elephants, uh, use a Vegas term, and they've moved part of that retreat to Mar-a-Lago. So, you know, really trying to suck up to, to Trump in that way. But I don't, I don't know where that funding is going to go. Now, what Trump has said is that he doesn't want money from the RNC or other PACs going to support the rhinos. And if you don't know what a rhino is, it stands for Republican in name only, R-I-N-O. The term has been around for a while. I think it was 
around well before uh, 2016, well before Trump, but it was used more sparingly. It really was used for those really sort of ultra moderate Republicans. And today it's pretty much labeled any Republican that doesn't get behind Trump. So if you're not the most extreme and radicalized right-wing conservative nutcase, you're a rhino. Mitt Romney is a rhino. Uh, That's, I guess, the best example. And I think, uh, did Trump call McConnell a rhino? But in either case, anyone that wasn't 100% behind Trump is a rhino. And he wants to use his political leverage now to primary those folks in 2022, if in fact that's something that uh, um, he's able to do. And the RNC doesn't want their incumbents primaried because when their incumbents get primaried, especially with the backing and endorsements of Trump, from the, the challenger from Trump, you get nutcases up there. And those wackos really don't have a great record. Trump doesn't have a great record of supporting candidates. And then they get their ass kicked by the Democrats. So this is all very good, all very good for the progressive movement. And, you know, does it does it mean the death of the Republican Party? It's certainly a nail. It's certainly a nail that's waiting to go into that coffin. And I, I don't know how it's going to resolve itself, um, but it will be fun to watch. The thing that the Republicans really need to rely on is turning out their base. And that's what the RNC needs Trump for, right? To turn out his base. And if he can't, and if he doesn't do that for them, then they probably lose elections. But now they've come up with another way. What if we reduce the turnout of the Democratic base? And that's what's happening all across the country, especially in red and purple states that are controlled by Republican legislations. And this is really dangerous and it's happening and it's happening for real. I I don't know what the court challenges will be like for some of these laws. I don't know how far some of the Republican governors will go. In Iowa, they signed into law today the new voter restriction bill, which cuts polling hours, cuts early registration, and cuts mail-in ballots. They can't just do full mail-in ballots any longer. Um, You know, can't do a blanket send out to all their constituents or all of their residents. Um, And it's, I think it's like punishable by a felony or something if the secretary of state does it. Uh, Iowa is still a fairly red state. So it, it doesn't concern me in terms of of the political landscape, but obviously this is to disenfranchise those people that struggle to get to the polls. And, you know, that's the working class, right? If you have a desk job, you're a white collar person, you're in business for yourself, oftentimes you can get to the polls. You have some flexibility in your schedule. But if you're a working mom with two jobs and you're trying to take care of your kids, and you have transportation issues, you want to be able to vote by mail. You want to have those polling places stay open later. You want to be able to get in to give an in-person vote uh, earlier than election day. And that's what the Iowa law does 
uh, limit even further. I did see a study recently, and I, an article, and I would recommend that you kind of, you know, Google it yourself. But it talked about how maybe turnout in 2020 wasn't really driven by early voting. We did a lot of early voting, right? Uh, because of COVID and so many states like Michigan sent out ballots uh, to everyone. And I was one of those people as well. But of course, I would have gone to the polls had I not done a mail-in ballot. And I think maybe in this survey where they talk to people, it's easy to say I still would have voted, even if I wouldn't have done a mail-in ballot. But there's some data behind it. And it does give me hope that some of these restrictions are not going to disenfranchise as many people as I think it would. But it's it's a very serious dynamic that's happening across the country. And thankfully, in those purple states that have Democratic governors, that is the stopgap from passing these laws. And, you know, the Republican legislation in Michigan can do whatever they want, um, but Whitmer's never going to sign any kind of voting restriction. And the Republicans are trying to put this under the notion that it's to reduce the ability for voter fraud to happen. And of course, it's a disingenuous argument, cutting polling places by hour or two. I, I guess the people that were doing fraudulent impersonation voting only did it at closing time, right? Or they were only doing it on the early days of the voting and instead of, you know, uh, right on voting day. And on the mail-in ballot issue, there's just no evidence. There's just no evidence that there was any kind of widespread voter fraud that was perpetrated through mail-in ballots. In fact, you know, the states that have had different forms of mail-in ballots uh, for decades now, you know, they know how to do this and, and they're not having any problem with it whatsoever. Florida is a great example of the way they do their mail-in ballots. And that's a red state. So the arguments are really disingenuous. I suppose if you wanted to stop voter fraud, you might, I, I don't even know what that would be, but maybe there would be some other law that you might want to, um, you know, dream up to, 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 to limit the voter fraud. There really just isn't any. So why do you even need a, a, a law to address something that doesn't really even happen? Um, it'll be interesting to see what some of these Republican governors do in states like Georgia and uh, Arizona, um, I think is that a Democrat or a Republican governor? I'll have to get back to you on that. But it will be interesting to see what Governor Kemp does in Georgia and whether or not he signs these voter restriction laws into place. My guess is he probably will, but I, I do think there's an outside chance he won't. And then it's going to come down to what kind of lawsuit can be filed and is there good standing for the lawsuit when these would be legally passed bills? And along those same lines, you may have those lawsuits kind of put on hold until the Supreme Court looks at the challenge that they just decided to take up on, uh, on some voter restrictions and another gutting of the Voter Rights Act. Basically, if, if, if they rule with the defendant, or I, I guess the plaintiff, if they rule with the plaintiff, 
uh, it's going to give the states the ability to just about make up any kind of crazy rule that they want to disenfranchise anyone that they want. As long as it's not blatantly racist and, you know, that's where you kind of get into this nuanced argument, right? If you said, well, we're going to cut down on the number of polling places in the urban area, that in itself on its face may not be racist, but we know that it is. The goal is to create long lines in areas that have a higher percentage of minorities. And the one thing that will turn away voters more than anything else are long lines. And I, I you know, my, my hat's off to so many Democrats in 20, 2020 that stood in those long lines uh, in places around the country to make sure their voices were heard. And, you know, the, the vote by mail and the early voting took a lot of pressure off of that. But there were still some places in the country that had long lines. And thankfully, progressives were still able to, uh, you know, stick it out and get their get their votes in. I think this is one of those watch this space kind of moments. And let's just see how it plays out. But it's not looking good right now. I mentioned the border crisis for Biden, and he doesn't want to call it a crisis. Maybe I threw that term in there, lack of a better word. It is a problem, and there are fixes, and there are really good progressive fixes, and I think he's going to get there, but some of these things take time. You've got to undo everything that Trump was working on, the process of how these immigrants were processed was something that Trump had worked on and his minions like Miller for four years. And as Biden comes in and his people come in laying out a whole new set of rules, it's going to take some time. In the meantime, you do have more people. I I believe, you know, the news on this, that there are more people coming to the border. I don't worry about caravans. I don't even really worry about the numbers. But when you have more people coming into the border, it does put a strain on your resources at the border. What we really need to do is make sure that we take them in, we set them up on a path to getting an asylum hearing, and then we figure out the most humane way to deal with them after they're in. And putting them in cages and keeping them down at the border is really not a satisfactory way. And, you know, there's lots of other ideas out there. When you release them into the U.S., you assign them with social workers, you can monitor their whereabouts, and then you can find out where they're at, get them into their asylum hearings, and let due process take over after that. It's not very many that actually get in based on asylum. And, you know, we probably have to update some of the policies and laws that we have in terms of who gets in and who doesn't. You know, Jeff Sessions and uh, whoever took over after him, they didn't want domestic violence to be a reason for gaining asylum in the U.S. You know, I, I think those are interesting discussions to have. The, the larger issue that they're facing is the unaccompanied children that show up at the border. And these children may be with 
a relative that's not their parent, or they may be with coyotes, which are just transporting them, or maybe with somebody else. And what do you do with minors? Maybe many of them have, and I would imagine that most of them have some relatives in the U.S. So in most cases, I would say you release them to whoever their U.S. contacts are, but that may not be everybody. And that's why we have kids in cages and we shouldn't have kids in cages. But do not, do not fall for this, this thing I see swirling all over the internet that what Biden's doing is the exact same thing that Trump did. It is not, it is completely different. Trump was ripping children out of the arms of their parents, literally. I don't mean that in a hyperbolic way. And then putting them in cages, putting their parents somewhere else. And then they started taking those kids out of those cages and shipping them all over the United States. And hundreds of them were lost. And there are still hundreds of them that have not been reunited with their parents, either in the U.S. or back in Mexico or their Central American countries that they came from. And it's what they did was literally criminal. You know, it is not even close to what Biden is doing. There are unaccompanied minors showing up at the border. What do you do with them? That's very, very different than separating them from their parents. And I, I, you know, I think the Biden administrative motives are going to be, how do we do this in the most humane way with whatever numbers and resources they have available at this point in time? Because in many ways, the system wasn't set up for what happens there. Obama had the same problem. Obama, you know, he built the cages, you know, but he built the cages to house those folks that were coming there that didn't have family in the U.S. And, you know, do we need more humane housing? Do we need to have more facilities around the U.S.? Do we need, you know, foster home situations? Whatever it is, that is a completely different set of circumstances and scenarios than what uh, Trump and Sessions attempted to do back in, in that administration. So don't ever, don't ever fall for that nonsense. And I kind of wanted to bring up one other thing, and that is this story about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry in the news and them coming forward with allegations and accusations of racism from the royal family and certainly from the English media. I just, for the life of me, I cannot understand why the right, why the Trumpsters have glommed onto this story. Um, They are shredding them. I I know they want to have this narrative that globally there is no racism. Uh, That's part of what they they're they're doing you know they're they're dragging Meghan Markle and and Prince Harry you know through the mud it, it, for for trashing the royal family but so much of it seems like they want to protect the royal family you, you know nobody has to convince me that the queen just despised Donald Trump and thought he was a buffoon but somehow or another the conservative Trumpsters, the right, they've sort of glommed onto this and they're like speaking out on behalf of the royal family. 
We, we know that they like authoritarian figures, but of course the royal family doesn't even represent that anymore. So why are they doing this? And, and they're not doing it in, you know, like in passing. Yesterday, I had counted, I think it was 17 posts in the last 24 hours by Breitbart on this single topic. 17 posts on the royal family's personal business. And they keep trying to somehow expand it into a larger narrative, but it's really not. I mean, racism in in any situation, right, is a large narrative and has to be addressed, of course. But this is personal business. Like, do I think there's racist or racist people or thoughts within the folks that are part of the royal family? Of course there are, right? And and then is England a racist place? There are plenty of racists and racisms in, in England, as in other parts of Europe, just as there is in the United States. Because racism still comes down to individuals. Institutions really can't be racist inherently just as an institution, right? It has to be the people within that institution. And so I, I, it's just mind-blowing to me. I, I think it's part of, you know, they're millionaires and they, or using their terms, you know, they're millionaires and millionaires should not whine. You know, whether it's LeBron James or, you know, Alyssa Milano or anyone famous, they they like to pick these faux culture wars to gin up their base and build some hatred. Although... They never saw the hypocrisy that Trump was the whiniest millionaire of anyone. Like it just, it's it's always just blown me away. And I, I was engaged in some banter with this gal on on Breitbart, where she said something like, "You know, we have to stop focusing on the royal family because of all these things that Biden's doing." and she only blamed the MSM, right? The mainstream media. And I kind of pointed out, this story was on Breitbart. Why don't you call them out for making a bigger story out of this? They're the ones posting this 17 times. And it was nearly impossible to get her to admit that Breitbart was part of the problem that she was railing against. I don't know. It's, it, 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 it truly blows me away. Cannot explain it at all. All right. Sip a beer. I'm talking more than I'm drinking. Uh, And it's going down okay. It's really not a beer that I see myself buying again. Uh, But it's not bad either. Uh, I did kind of want to talk about, I I don't know how I want to continue to tackle the cultural aspect of Pottoms Up. It doesn't seem to ring as interesting when it's just me. But... Um, I'm going to give it a go uh, from time to time, and uh, any feedback that you might have or ideas or something you want me to talk about that isn't necessarily political, but sometimes they can be, you know, kind of on the fringe of politics. There can be a connection there, and I kind of feel like this is one of those things. I I saw a meme today uh, that said, uh, nothing should go back to normal. Normal wasn't working. If we go back to the way things were, we will have lost the lesson. May we rise up and do better. And I know that myself, 
I have used the term, you know, back to normal. I've also used the term the new normal, which is really an oxymoron, I suppose. If it's new, it may not be normal. Normal generally has some kind of history to to it. That's what made it normal. You know, it gets into real word parsing here. But it did get me thinking about was normal working? You know, one of the things that comes to mind is the idea of just wearing masks. And parts of Asia have been wearing masks for various reasons for a very long time. Now, they live in very congested populations, and they have known all along that masks will reduce the spread of airborne illnesses, viruses, diseases. And most of the time when people wore masks in Asia, and I've been there uh, about a dozen times, it's they aren't feeling well, so they wear a mask. Sometimes they are uh, pre-COVID, were worried about catching something, but most of the time it was consideration for someone else. And one of the things that wearing a mask has done in America this last 24 months, uh, 12 months, sorry, is we've almost completely eliminated influenza uh, this winter. And, you know, that's because of all the precautions that we took. COVID-19 was much more contagious. So it still was working its way through society, even though we took a lot of mitigation efforts. And the flu really took a beating because of those mitigation tactics that we used. Should that be, dare I say, part of the new normal, right? Where if you're not feeling well, wear a mask going forward, even when the mask mandates are all but history. And, you know, what else should not be normal post-COVID, right? You know, will people go back to shaking hands? Will people wash their hands more? And does the meme also project itself in ways broader than COVID, right? Is it not so much about COVID, but is is it about politics, right? Is it about, you know, how we interact with one another? I mean, there's lots of things that we need to do better at as a society. Many of them are cultural, some of them are political, and some of them are tied. You know, gun control and gun violence is is one of them. Going back to normal doesn't really solve our gun violence problem in the United States, right? Going back to normal doesn't really solve our institutional and systemic racism that we have. And and so I, I kind of like the idea of not going back to normal, but, you know, it, it does leave it open for a variety of interpretations and uh, applications, I guess, is the way I, I would put it. I don't know. You know, I just thought it was an interesting meme and, and something to think about. When, when you think about going back to normal or something that you don't think should go back to normal, I, I wonder what that might be. Um, you, you know, for me, normalcy will really happen when I'm able to go catch live musical acts again. And I'm really looking forward to that. I actually have a ticket coming up for March 20th, and I don't think the show is going to get canceled, but it still could. It just went on sale 
small club. Uh, at that time, they were going for 25% seating. So I don't know if now they're going to sell more tickets for 50% seating. Um, and it's someone that I've wanted to see. Uh, if you're curious, his name is uh, Anthony Gomes, and he's a blues guitarist. Um, that will be one step towards normalcy. Having friends over will be another step towards normalcy. And to a certain extent, travel will, but travel certainly could change now, right? You know, will tra people travel as much? And what does that travel look like? Last week, I recorded from Texas, and Pop-Tart and I were there for a medical procedure. And for all of you that are concerned, things are going along fine at this point in time, so appreciate your thoughts. Um, you know, the airports were fairly dead. And when do they start bringing, you know, if, if people are adjusting, how do the airlines know when demand is going to be high enough where they start to bring up their their flight numbers and, and routes again. So whether it's airline travel, your own personal travel, which also could mean like car travel, like visiting family, you know, will that go back to normal? So there's lots of different ways to look at what's going to be normal, what's not going to be normal, and what shouldn't be normal. Um, those little tidbits, I'll let you think about what will be normal or abnormal for yourself. And in the meantime, drink up, listen up, and pop's up. Politics, some culture and craft beer. Politics, and that is why you're here. Politics, Adam's up.